Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Today we continue our sermon series that we began a little while ago on the life of Jesus. And we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Up to this point, we have finished the introduction. Now, Luke had a little brief introduction at the beginning, the first four verses, where he told Theophilus, the guy he wrote the book for, why he did it. But then he got into the introduction, introduction of his book. And it was all about God setting the stage for Jesus to show up. And he talked about how there were these two... um, supernatural, miraculous births that were going to take place. And they were announced to their parents. Zacharias and Zechariah and Elizabeth were going to have John the Baptist. And then Mary and Joseph, Mary having Jesus. And Joseph was to be committed to her through that process. And then all the events of the births of both of those uh, boys. But now we're going to jump into the main part of the story. Before we do that, though, let me just tell you the title of my message today is Prepare for His Coming. Prepare for his coming. I want to get your mind thinking along these lines, but when you know that you're going to have a special guest at your house, either for a meal, for an evening of activity, to spend the night or maybe a a couple of days with you, what are the things that you do to prepare? We all probably have different things. Some people may not prepare very much because you live a life of preparedness. It's ready, whatever that means. For most of us, though, it means there's certain things that we want to do. There are some certain things that we might want to prepare in advance before they get there. There are certain things that we might want to clean or we want to rearrange or we want to um, straighten up. There are positive aspects that we want to fix special food. We want to make plans for what we're going to do, what the activity, what the entertainment is going to be, if that's the case. If they're spending the night, we want to make sure there's clean sheets on the bed, right? No? I know we do in our house. (laughs) Usually when we have somebody sleep in the guest bed, as soon as they're gone, we wash the sheets so we know we're good for the next time somebody shows up, you know. But you want to check the guest bathtub, the guest shower, make sure there's toilet paper in the roll, all that kind of stuff. You know, there's all kinds of things that we might do to prepare for someone who comes to visit with us. Now, it's a little bit different of a visitation, a little bit different of a preparation, but that's what our story is all about today. You know, we're familiar with the beginning part of this story that I just kind of summarized a few moments ago that we've seen in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. The announcement of the conception and birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, how it actually happened and the unusual circumstances of their births and all that kind of stuff. And last week we looked at this short story, the only story really we have of Jesus' childhood when he was 12 and he was in the temple. And if you missed that or any of the other uh, sermons, you can watch them or listen to them online because they're all posted there. But other than that, we really don't have any information about what happened until Jesus came on the scene when he was about 30 years old. And God uses John the Baptist to prepare the way. Now, we are familiar with that story because we have read it. It's in our Bible. But you have to understand that when we jump into this story today, the people who lived during that day were not familiar with all this information. 
There may be certain individuals, especially John the Baptist's family and Joseph and Mary and other close family and friends who knew about these events, but nobody else really did. There may be a couple of people that remembered that precocious 12-year-old in the temple 18 years ago who seemed to have the answer to all the questions and understanding of God's word that went way beyond his years. But for the most part, God's people in Israel are living under tyranny, they're living under oppression, and not just political oppression because the Roman Empire long ago took over their nation and has basically got their thumb on top of them and taxing them to death and controlling their lives. But unfortunately, they were under spiritual oppression too because their religious leaders were so caught up in their own self-importance and hypocrisy and going through the motions and the power and their embedded beliefs that were not just based on, they were based on God's word, but they went way beyond God's word. All the rules and laws and regulations that they had added to what God had asked his people to do. And the people were weighed down. They were burdened. God had been promising for centuries that eventually he would send someone to set everything right. You put all the little pieces of the puzzle together because God gave these messages over a long period of time through the various prophets and leaders of his people. But you put it all together that God was going to send this one and he was going to be from the line of David. He was going to reestablish God's kingdom. That he was going to bring about righteousness. He was going to make things right. He was going to deal with injustice and oppression. And so God's people for centuries have been yearning for this person to show up. And they called him the Messiah. The anointed one. That's what the title Christ means. It's the Greek form of Messiah. It is the Greek form of the anointed one. So Jesus Christ, when he shows up and he's called that, he's Jesus, the anointed one. He's Jesus, the Messiah. He's the one that God has sent. And they're waiting. They're waiting. Every mother hoped that maybe their son would be the one. So they're waiting under all this oppression. So we jump into our story now. John and Jesus are about 30 years old. It's time for Jesus to start his ministry. John the Baptist appears on the scene. So let's look at the setting, first of all. As we look at Luke chapter 3, we find the setting in verses 1 and 2. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And we'll, we'll stop right there. We have a listing of all these names. The first four, five, six, I forgot to note how many, are political leaders from Caesar in Rome all the way down to local leaders. And then the last two are the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel. The former high priest who still controls most of the power and the one who's technically in office, the high priest currently, Anna and Caiaphas. Why are those words? Why is that there? Well, that was the typical way someone who wrote during that time would introduce a story so it could be grounded in history. So the people who are reading it later, whether it's five years, ten years, a hundred years, or in our case, almost 2,000 years later, would know exactly when it happened. But that's only one of the reasons I believe Luke put that in there. I think Luke put that in there to 
let the reader know this is a real story. These are real events. This isn't just some kind of fairy tale or a nice story we tell around the table or around the fire when we're relaxing at light. You know, once upon a time. These are true events. Not only that, but I think he wanted people to know the kind of world that Jesus came into. All that I just described, all the political oppression, all the religious oppression, all the the burdens the people were carrying and their yearning and their desire for the Messiah to come. But I think another reason it's there is the fact that John's going to prepare the way by telling people how to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. And it's not just the common people who need to prepare themselves. It's not just the common people who need to know the truth. Everybody needs to know the truth. Even these leaders, these political leaders, and these religious leaders need to have the truth presented to them and they need to respond to it. And it's very interesting that almost all of these leaders that are mentioned were confronted with the truth, either by John the Baptist, by Jesus himself, and or by Jesus' followers, the apostles. This particular Caesar, I don't know if you ever heard about Jesus or not, but his successors did, especially Nero. All these different rulers, we know that um, Pilate is going to have Jesus appear before him. Herod is going to be rebuked by John the Baptist because of his tremendously sinful lifestyle, and he claimed to be a good, godly Jew. Anna. Annas and Caiaphas are both going to be confronted with Jesus, and they're the ones that are actually going to pronounce judgment on him. Everybody needs the truth. And not just everybody then, but everybody now. You know, this story was written almost 2,000 years ago, but as we've said many times, Luke wrote this story down so that he could give the full story. He did research and everything so that he could give the full story of Jesus and who he was and what he came to do so that those who would be confronted with this story, they would read this story, they would have the story told to them, they could examine the evidence for themselves and make a decision for themselves about the truthfulness of the claims that are here and say, how should that affect my life? And that process begins today. With this story. It began that day when John showed up and made a big, uh, a big deal, put it that way. But it's still true today. The story we're going to read today, the truth that it, it, that it holds, we need to confront our own lives with. So, that's the setting. Let us look at the messenger. Because God is going to send a message, and it's John the Baptist. Look at verses 2 to 6. Verse 2 starts with the ending of that listing of names, but it says, During this time, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This messenger, who was he? We know him as John the Baptist. He's not called John the Baptist in Luke, but he is in the other Gospels. He's called John the Baptist not because the Baptist is his last name, but because that's what he did. 
He's the son of Zechariah. He's the son of Elizabeth. And he is the one that had been prophesied would be the one who would come and prepare the way for God's Messiah. It had been prophesied in Malachi. And when the angel Gabriel showed up to his father to tell him that they were going to have a child, which was miraculous because they were way too old to have children, he pointed him to the same scriptures to say, this is the one that was prophesied. Your son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. John. What do we know about John? Matthew tells us more about John than Luke does, and you can read about that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. But the thing that Matthew points out that John doesn't mention so much is that John was very different, okay? And by different, I mean really different. He lived out in the wilderness, and his difference was outward and inward. Outwardly, he dressed funny. I mean, that's just, that's just telling the truth. I'm not making fun of him. But he wore rough clothing of camel's hair with a big leather belt. And his regular diet was locusts and wild honey. Any of you eaten any of that recently? No. Some of you have eaten some stuff that would seem kind of strange to other people. You know, that's true for all of us, isn't it? You know, different cultures have different types of foods, you know, that kind of thing. And locusts and wild honey sounds really strange to us. And it was a little bit different for the people of that day. But they were used to that. I mean, honey is honey. You know, you got wild honey, cultivated, whatever. But locusts, I mean, those were actually edible and eaten by very poor people during that day. But I think I'll stick to my diet. So outwardly, he was a little bit different, but inwardly, he was different too. Because you see, God had called him, God had prepared him, and he knew it. It says the word of God came to John. That is an official way of stating that God had chosen John to be a prophet and to speak for him. You may remember that I've mentioned along the way that there has been no public prophecy for over 400 years. And now God is beginning to speak publicly through a man. And John spoke with authority. He had authority. When you go and you read the account of John's life and all the different Gospels, it says that people came from everywhere into the wilderness to see John and to hear what he had to say. You know, we think of Jesus when he starts ministering and traveling around. People are flocking to him. But you know, it's pretty obvious that for a lot of them, it's because of the miracles he's doing. You know, he's healing people. You need a healing, I've got to find Jesus. You know, somebody you love or care about needs a healing, let's go find Jesus. Other people came because he was saying some very interesting things and he was speaking with authority. Eventually, Jesus would get the reputation for doing the impossible, like healing lepers and healing the blind and even raising the dead. And so people would gather. And then he began to feed people from time to time in miraculous ways. And so they would gather for that reason. But it's interesting that when you talk about John the Baptist and great crowds of people coming from all over the country and even outside the country to hear what he has to say, John the Baptist is never recorded as doing any miracle at all. I think it's because his message was so powerful and filled with the authority of God. And I think it was also because the content of his message is that God's getting ready to do something big. God's getting ready to send the Messiah. The one the people had been yearning for for so long. It was good news. It was good news. But not only was John different, we find that as we look at his life, John was committed John was committed to God and his message. Mission. I keep getting mission and message tangled together, okay? God was... Uh, God. Let me give you just a second. 
Lord, please help me to think straight and speak straight. John was committed to God and his mission. As I said, God had called him from before he was born. He prepared him from before he was born that he was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. It had been prophesied in Malachi. It had been prophesied in Isaiah. In fact, Luke quotes Isaiah here. He says that this is the one Isaiah was talking about, that someone would come crying from the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. Basically, God's going to show up. What is the purpose of God showing up? At the end, it says, so that all flesh, not just God's people, Israel, but all the world, everyone would have the opportunity to see the salvation of God. The quote that he has here, he says that as this one goes forth and says, prepare the way for the Lord, fill in the valleys, level the mountains, make the crooked straight, make the rough smooth. It's kind of a poetic way of saying what they used to do in that day when a great leader would visit a town or a village or a city. The people and the leadership of that town, leader, uh, village or city would get a crew of people together and they would go out a distance from the city and they would... They would do a bunch of road work, okay? <laughs> they would make sure the road was smooth. They would make everything as easy as, and nice as possible. So sort of like throwing out, rolling out the red carpet for that leader. And that is the picture here. It's, it, it's Isaiah is prophesying there's going to be a, come, a time when God will come and show up in a big way. And everybody needs to get things ready for him to show up. Because he's going to bring about salvation. And it was clear that he's talking about the Messiah, but it's not just talking about physical things. It's talking about spiritual things. That those things that have been lifted up, the pride that gets in the way needs to be lowered. Those who have been downtrodden will be lifted up. The things that have been crooked need to be made straight. The things that are rough, they're not really the way they should be. They need to be smoothed out. It needs to be done not just in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. So, John was committed to God and his mission. We see he was also committed to the truth. We're going to be looking at the truth that he preached. We read a little bit of the summary. And he did have good news. In fact, the story we're reading today ends with him saying that he proclaimed good news to everybody that would come to hear him. But the good news was only good because there was a lot of bad news. And John's commitment to the truth meant that he had to share the bad news too. You see, if you look at John's message and you only read part of it, you say, this can't be good news. I mean, he is rebuking people left and right. But you know what? Good news is only good news when you know the bad news. And the good news overcomes the bad news. I've used the illustration many times that if someone were to come up with a cure for a certain type of cancer, that'd be good news. But it'd be especially good news for those people that have that kind of cancer. They've already received the bad news. And can I just tell you, it's so important, uh, even today, that we get all of the truth. Um, Maybe you've known of, and I don't have any particular person in mind, but maybe you've known of preachers or teachers that it seems like all they ever focused on was the bad news. And always wanting to preach and teach about sin and hell and um, damnation and you better repent and all that kind of stuff. And, and there is a place for that. There's a, there's a place for that in John's message and there's a place for that in our message today. But it seems like some people, that's all they want to focus on. And then you have people that want to go to the other extreme and just focus on all the good stuff. 
God loves you. God wants to save you. God wants to bless your life. God wants, and all those things are true too, and we need that side of the message. But there has to be a balance. We see it's in John's message. It's not just one or the other. He was committed to the truth, all of it, and he was committed to the truth no matter what the consequences were. He saw a lot of good results, and we'll see a little bit of that today, where people responded in a positive way. But there are people that responded in a negative way. In the other Gospels, it talks about the religious leaders kind of harassing him. And in this story, it talks about how Herod ended up arresting John. And not in Luke, but the other Gospels, it tells us how Herod had John put to death because of his message. But John was committed to the truth, all of it no matter what the consequences would be. But all these things were true because he was committed to the Messiah. He was committed to the one that he had been sent to prepare the way for, Jesus. Jesus actually is related to John. But God called him to prepare for his coming. And when Jesus does show up, John is very quick to point to him and say, this is the one that we've been waiting for. And John had become very, very popular among the common people. And it had been very easy for him to get full of pride and uh, arrogance and to revel in that position of popularity and authority. But that's not what you see John doing. Because he was committed to the Messiah, he was committed to the one that God had sent him to proclaim. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. Okay, he's the one that needs to get the attention. He pointed people to Jesus. In fact, we're going to see a little bit later... In our story today, um, when people begin to think, John, are you the Messiah? He says, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. I'm nothing compared to the Messiah. In fact, you know the one's coming? I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Anything to do with the feet. (laughs) Foot washing. You know, that's in the story of Jesus in John chapter 14. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Anything to do with the feet because they were so dirty and nasty. You could not require or ask anybody to do for you unless they were the lowest of slaves and so when john said the one's coming i don't even i'm not even worthy to untie his sandal he says you know what compared to this one that's coming compared to going to be jesus compared to the messiah he says, i am nothing it's very humble it's not the main point of the sermon today but as we look at john as this messenger can i tell you that the world needs more messengers like john today And I'm not just talking about preachers. I'm talking about all of us. And not in the sense that we have to be different. I know that Peter talks about how we are a peculiar people, but that doesn't mean that we need to act peculiarly on purpose. It just means that if we live for Jesus, people are going to think we're a little strange. But you know what? We need to do that. We need to live for Jesus to the degree that people say, you know what? This is not normal. But just as important, God is looking for messengers who are committed committed to him, committed to his mission for you, committed to Jesus, committed to the truth. And can I just say, as we pause for just a moment right here, can I challenge you to be a messenger for God, like John the Baptist was, willing to speak up and tell the truth when the occasion makes, its way avail- makes itself available. There's a lot more we can learn about John. You can study that on your own, especially in Matthew and Mark and the Gospel of John. But let's go on and look at his message, because this is what I want to really focus the most on today, is the message of John the Baptist. 
Go back to verse 3 because the summary of it is there. Luke chapter 3, verse 3. It says that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's message had to do with the fact that God was willing to forgive sins. But it required repentance. Baptism is thrown in there because it's something that he asked people to do as a sign that they had repented. It is not at all trying to say that you must be baptized to be forgiven. It's saying that the repentance brings forgiveness, but then the baptism is a public declaration, a public showing of the fact that you've done that. So the summary of the message is that forgiveness is available through baptism. Later in verse 18, it's going to say, with many other exhortations, he preached the good news. In Matthew's account in Matthew 3, 2, it quotes him as saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All these things together, God's getting ready to break into history. His Messiah is coming. He's going to begin the setting up of his kingdom. You need to get ready. You need to get ready. Just like many other things, it's good news and bad news. The good news, God's going to show up and he wants to save us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to make things right between us. But the bad news is that there's judgment coming too. And if we don't do what we need to do, we're going to face the judgment. That was the message of John's day, but it's still the message today. So let's take a look at a couple of things about this message. The first thing is the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. As I said, the way it's worded in the Gospels is that the kingdom is near. God is getting ready to show up to show his salvation. But everybody understood what that meant. Because rather than God himself just showing up in some great glorious manifestation, God had been promising to show up in the presence of this one he was going to send called the Messiah. And so John shows up, he begins to proclaim, listen, the event, the person that we've been waiting for for so long, he's coming, he's coming. The Messiah, he's coming. That's why the people were so excited. The second thing he emphasized is you need to get ready. You see, John was called and prepared to prepare the way for the Messiah, but his preparation wasn't just to announce that he was coming, but it was to tell the people that they need to prepare themselves for the Messiah to come. You see, they thought they were ready. How many times do we think we're ready for something and we're really not? You know, uh, for us guys, you know, we think we're ready to go out and do whatever, and our wives let us know, well, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're really going to go out like that? <laughs> yeah, so many times we think we're ready, we find out we're not really ready. And, and these people thought they were ready. I mean, they were the ones that were under the oppression. They had been calling out to God. They've been saying, God, send the Messiah. They're ready. But John says, make sure you're ready. Make sure you're ready. We find in this story that there are people that thought they were ready just because they were descendants of Abraham not because they had their own personal relationship with God. Let's take a look at the rest of this this message here. We're going to read um, verses 7 to 18. We'll pick it up where we left it off before. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Wouldn't you love love for me to start out my sermon that way? You know, we all gathered together today, but you guys are just like a bunch of snakes. You're only here because you don't want to go to hell. 
And uh, you're still in trouble because you think that just because you're coming to church, you're all right with God. I mean, that's kind of the same thing that Paul, that, that, that Paul. man, I'm having a hard time today. You all pray for me, okay? <laughs> that's kind of what John's preaching here, okay? He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what... And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, the Messiah, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here's John's message. Here's John's good news. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But it was good news. The Messiah is coming. God is sending the one who's going to put into place that which is going to make everything right. Now, they thought somebody was going to come in and they were going to kick the Romans out, set up God's physical kingdom at that time, and bring back all the glories of the past history and just deal with all the oppression and injustice and all that kind of thing. But in God's plans, we see that that day is still coming. Jesus is coming back to set up God's kingdom physically, manifested in this world and to deal with all the injustice and oppression. But first, he had to take care of the sin problem. That's why he ended up dying on the cross instead of being set up as a king on a throne in Jerusalem. But it is good news. The Messiah is coming, but the people need to be ready. As I said, they were looking at it like, we're God's people, so we're good. We're descendants of Abraham. And Jesus says, God can make descendants of Abraham out of rocks. It's not your descent. It's not the circumstances of your life that you happen to find yourself in. It's the condition of your heart. And that's what led to the third part of his message, and that is repent. Repent. What does it mean to repent? The word literally means to change. In the Greek world, it meant to change your mind about something. But in the Hebrew world, which is the Jewish world, the world of Israel, and the concept that was used all through the history of God's people is that you don't just change your mind, but because you've changed your mind, you're going to change your attitude, and that's going to change your actions. It has the idea of turning around, of you're headed the wrong direction, and you realize you're going the wrong direction, so you stop, and you turn around, and you start going the other direction. In your thoughts, you realize, I've been thinking the wrong things. I've been believing the lies. I've not been clinging to the truth. I've got to stop that. I'm going to cling to the truth. In our attitudes, 
we realize I've not been looking at things the right way. I've not had the right attitude toward God and other people. It's wrong. I've got to change. And in our actions, the same thing. I've not been living right. I've got to get my life together. I can't help but think of the time. Perhaps you've seen this live. I know I've seen various recordings of it. But some kind of athletic event where teams are playing a game, whether it's soccer or football or basketball or whatever, and a team player gets all mixed up. Maybe they've been hit, knocked down, whatever. And they get up and they've got the ball and they're just going for everything they've got toward the goal. The problem is it's the wrong goal. You ever seen that? That's kind of like the picture here. You may have great enthusiasm and great zeal, but you're headed toward the wrong goal. You need to turn around. And just like that team member's teammates are saying, hey, hey, turn around. John the Baptist is saying, it's time to turn around. God is saying, it's time to turn around. The religious leaders, as I mentioned earlier, were so caught up in their positions and their power and their authority. They were involved in hypocrisy. It was all about traditions and rituals. It wasn't about a relationship with God. It was all superficial. John says you need to repent. But it wasn't just the religious leaders. It was the common people. He says, you know, you think that just because you're part of God's people and you're among the oppressed, the Romans are are making our life miserable, and that was true. The religious leaders are making our spiritual lives miserable, and that was true. You think that just because you're, you're, you're of the right ethnic stock and you're some of the oppressed that God said he will deliver, that you're okay. He says, but there's things about your life that are not right. And we read about some of the responses. We'll get to those in a moment. So well, then what do we need to do? The summary word is you need to repent. Whatever's not right, you need to get it right. This is the same message that was preached by Jesus. When you go through the Gospels and it talks about what he proclaimed to the people, you know, he healed people, he taught them. But when he's preaching, he says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. You know, the basic Gospel message is repent and believe. Repent of the fact you're headed the wrong way and believe that God took care of it through Jesus Christ. We see that was the message of the early church in Acts 26, verses 19 to 20. Paul is giving his testimony. He's summarizing what he's been preaching for all these years. And he says, I declared that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You see, Repentance is a change, it's a turning, and it's turning from sin and all that is wrong and all that is bad and all that is evil and turning to God and to his way, but not just to a bunch of rules and regulations, but to God himself and a relationship with him. He mentions a couple, there's a couple other things in this passage that tell us some clarification on repentance. The the first one is that this repentance is symbolized by baptism. He is called John the Baptist because he baptized everybody. But he baptized people because that was the evidence, that was a way of them proclaiming that I have repented. I want to be ready for God's work in my life. I want to be ready for this Messiah. And he would, he, he would rebuke those that came and say, I want to be baptized. And he knew they hadn't repented, especially the religious leaders. 
That's why he calls them brood of vipers. I mean, in Luke, he just kind of says it to the crowd, but in Matthew, it says he was specifically talking to the religious leaders and the hypocrites who came to be baptized because that was the popular thing to do. He says, no, 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 no. You don't just get baptized to get baptized. You need to be baptized because there's been a change in your life. It's still true today. The Christian baptism is a little bit different than John's baptism because now we're on this side of the cross. But just as baptism then symbolized that the people had truly repented and their sins had been washed away, the baptism symbolized that today as we are baptized as believers, and that's the only way we should be baptized, is that we are believers. We have repented. We know Jesus is our Savior. And it represents that our sins have been washed away also, but it represents other things too. It represents that just as Jesus died and was buried and rose again, when we've repented of our sins and surrendered our lives to Christ, we also have died to our old lives and have risen to new. And that's what the going under the water and coming back up symbolizes, death to the old life and taking up the new one. So repentance is, a symbol, is symbolized by baptism. And the other thing that he mentions here, it makes very clear, is repentance results in a changed life. In other words, if you're truly repentant, there will be a change because that's all wrapped in the definition of the word. You see, repentance can, be, can involve being sorrow, sorry for your sin. And that's a good thing. But can I tell you that you can repent even if you don't feel great overwhelming sorrow or conviction. You can repent because you just know it's been wrong and I need to make it right. But it's more than just sorrow. You see, sometimes people think that, well, you know, if I feel sorry for my sin and I feel convicted and I feel guilty and I cry and this, that, and the other, and I pray, then, then that's the whole thing of repentance. But it's, that's, that's only maybe the first two-thirds of it. Repentance is finalized. Repentance is finished. Repentance is demonstrated by the fact that if you're truly repentant, your life will change. Some things change immediately because it's like, I just got to stop and we just stop. Sometimes it takes time to see that all worked out in our lives. But the thing is, is our lives are headed a different direction. Changes are happening. I know I'm jumping from John's story to our story, but I just want to throw this in here. You know, if we claim to be believers, Christians, followers of Jesus, dependent upon him for salvation, our life, has not changed and is not changing to more line up with what God has for us, we may be deceiving ourselves. And that's part of the message that John is giving to the people then. He says, listen, don't deceive yourselves. Make sure that you really are ready for God to show up because God's not coming just to bring the Messiah, to bring relief from oppression and to to bless his people, but he's coming and it's going to bring judgment too. And if you're not ready... You're not going to experience the blessing. You're going to experience the judgment. Repentance results in a changed life, and we see that teaching all through Scripture. John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. James, in James 2, 14 to 26, you can read a whole passage later. He puts it this way. If you have faith, but it doesn't result in good works in your life, your faith's dead. In other words, it's not real. It's not valid. In fact, he even says there something I mentioned last week. He says, you know, you may claim, I believe in Jesus. He says, even demons do that. You've got demon faith. Real faith makes a difference in your life. 
So he goes on, and the message also includes this. If you repent, you will receive life. See, here's the thing. If we'll be honest with ourselves, and we'll deal with the sin in our lives, and we need God's help to do that, but if we will repent, God forgives. That's the way John put it. He came to bring baptism because of those who've repented for the forgiveness of their sins. God forgives if we repent and we receive life. And I love the fact that Luke emphasizes in this passage and all through his gospel that this life is for everybody. Not just the Israelites, not just the Jewish people. Everybody. God sent Jesus so that eventually life could be offered to the world. All mankind will see God's salvation, it says. Another little picture of the life here is he as the people are beginning to wonder, well, I wonder if John's the Messiah. And apparently it gets, the word gets to him, and he's very quick because he's concerned that he points, his, uh, points to the right person. He's very quick to say, no, I'm not the one. In fact, you read in the Gospel of John, the religious leaders even sent somebody to ask him, are you the one that's to come? Are you the, one, are you the Messiah? He said, no, 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 I'm not him. I'm just pointing the way to him. Okay. He says, no, he's going to come. And he says, I, I just baptize with water. Okay? It's just a simple physical act to demonstrate what happened in people's lives. He says, but the one that I'm pointing to, the one that's going to come, this Messiah that's going to come and going to set up God's you know, kingdom and, and make things right, he says, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. That was fulfilled primarily on the day of Pentecost when God sent his Holy Spirit to indwell his believers. And it's that presence and power of God available to believers dwelling inside us that brings that life. The last thing I want to mention about the message is this. He says, makes it very clear, if you do not repent, you will receive judgment. If you do not repent, you will receive judgment. You know, John tells us why that is. It's not that they refuse to do this thing and so God's going to judge them. John makes it very clear, if you read the first couple chapters of John, that the reason people that don't receive judge, uh, that don't repent will receive judgment is because we are already under judgment. You see, we're born in sin. The one passage of Scripture says we're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. We're all born with that sinful tendency and we live it out. And because of that, we're already under God's judgment on sin. But he didn't want us to stay there. That's why he sent Jesus. So if we do not repent, if we don't deal with that sin, we will receive judgment. And, and that's the message John's giving to the people here. He says, you know, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah is not just going to be a time of rejoicing and blessing. It will be for those that have prepared themselves. But for those who won't, I mean, there's, let's see here, one, two, four different pictures here of judgment in this short passage. He mentions in verse 7, the wrath to come. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? God's wrath is coming. And you think that by coming and performing some kind of physical act without really meaning in your heart, you can avoid that? No, you can't. He gives the picture in verse 9 about how there's an axe that's all ready to cut the tree down. He hasn't cut it down yet. But there's an axe ready to be used to cut down any tree that doesn't bear fruit, and the trees will be thrown into fire. Picture of God's judgment. When he talks about the one who's coming after him being much greater than he is. And he talks about how he'll baptize him with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
The fire speaks about the, the, the purifying process for those of us that believe. But it also speaks about the fact that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is not something that people will be glad of if they're not right with God because it brings the judgment of God. And the last picture he gives is in verse 17. When he says here, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's a picture they were all familiar with and maybe really strange to us. But when they would harvest their grain, they would take the grain to the threshing floor. And the part of the grain that you wanted to keep was the kernel that was on the inside of the head. But that kernel was surrounded by other growth. It's called chaff. And there was the stems, and they would put that down, and, and they would have um, oxen tread on it, and they would have wagons and sledges, and, and basically to kind of slightly grind it all up and loosen the kernels on the inside from the external chaff and stuff. And then they would take what was called a winnowing fork or a shovel, and the, 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 the threshing floors would usually be on a high place where it was relatively windy, usually in the evening. And so they would take, and they would toss that stuff up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away and the kernels were heavier they would fall back down so when the process was through you'd have a pile of grain and all the worthless stuff the chaff would have been blown away well he takes that picture to say that's the way god's gonna that's the way things are gonna be when god settles accounts he's gonna separate the grains the wheat from the chaff and he takes the picture a little bit farther the chaff is not just gonna be blown away but it's going to be burned up judgment is going to come the people must repent of sin or they will face judgment and so this is the message that john brings to the people let's look real quick at the response okay i already read verses 10 to 14 there were some of the people that were convicted by his message and they said well what do i need to do what do we what do we need to do And so he starts getting very practical. There's certain groups of people that had certain things going on in their lives, and and he gives them some very specific examples. I mean, this isn't the the full thing they need to do, but this is some examples of what they need to do. He tells the whole crowd, he says, you know, one way you can show that you're truly repentant and you're wanting to be right with God is that if you have more of what people need than other people do, in fact, they don't have anything at all, then share what you have. In their culture, they were so concerned about just having enough to wear and enough to eat. So, so when he uses the example of clothing and food, that was a big deal. He says, you know what? If you've got two tunics, which was kind of the, the undergarment that would keep you warm, uh, keep you warm under the outer uh, mantle, the outer coat. He says, if you've got two of them and you know somebody that doesn't have any shirt at all, give them one of yours. If you've got more than enough food to feed you and you know somebody that doesn't have, give to them. So just in general, you can just say, you know what? You want to know what one of the fruits of repentance is? You know one thing you can do? Just care about people. Stop being selfish and start sharing. See what you can do to help other people that are in need instead of being so self-focused. It says the tax collectors asked him, what should we do? Now, you've probably heard this before, but if not, tax collectors were looked looked down upon by everybody else because they were employed by the Roman government to collect taxes. And so they're working for the enemy, but the way they went about it is that if they could collect more than they had to pay to the people above them, that's how they earned their living. So as you can imagine, the temptation was there to collect as much as they could 
you know, give to the person over them what they required and keep the rest for themselves. And so that occupation attracted the worst type of people who were part of the oppression. I mean, they would tax people to the limit. And what could the people do if they refused to pay the taxes? The tax collectors could just bring the soldiers and force them to. So they were considered terrible sinners. And they asked John. Some of them were convicted. What do we need to do? He says, don't collect more than you're required to. In other words, what he's saying is do your job, but do it right. Do it honestly. Do it fairly. Don't oppress people. Don't gouge people. If I could paraphrase, if I, the, 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 you deserve a little profit. You've got to make a living, but don't be trying to take everything you can from people. If we were to apply this to us today, it would be, you know what? Do your job, but do it well and do it honestly. And this is the soldiers asked. Now, these are not probably Roman soldiers, but Jewish soldiers who would be like the police of today. They use, were often reinforcing what the tax collectors were trying to do, keep the peace, that kind of stuff. They said, what should we do? He says, don't extort money or accuse people falsely. Be content with what you have. They were in a position of power. They could be very abusive. They could force people to give them money. They could give people a hard time whether they deserved it or not. They could accuse people falsely. He says, do your job. He, you know, he didn't tell the tax collectors to leave their job or even the soldiers. He says, go ahead and do your job, but do it right. Do it fairly. Treat people well. Treat people right. Again, this is not a sum total of what John says people need to do to show that they're repentant, but it's just some simple examples. And it demonstrates what we said earlier, that if you're truly repentant, it'll make a difference in your life. You'll start doing your best with God's help to do what's right and stop doing what's wrong. Now, there was one negative response, verses 19 and 20. I'm sure there were more than one, but in his story here. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. I'm sure that there probably was an opportunity that maybe John said something in public, but it seems to indicate that John spoke to Herod face to face. And he rebuked him. Herod was a leader of the nation. He wasn't one of the religious leaders. He was one of the political leaders, but he claimed to be a good, godly man. But it was all a form and it was all a show. He had done a lot of good things for his people, but he was involved in a terribly immoral lifestyle. He'd had a number of wives. He divorced one of them to marry Herodias, who happened to be his brother's wife, so she had to get a divorce. But that isn't even the beginning of it. She's actually his niece. A bunch of incest going on here. A lot of different things that break God's law and God's principles. And John says, this isn't right. Herod didn't like it, so he arrested him, and then later on he ended up putting him to death. So there were negative responses too, because each person has to make their own choice. Now, as we wrap this up, I just want to say, you know, John at this time couldn't talk about Jesus and his death on the cross. I mean, he could point to the fact that Jesus is going to come because the cross hadn't happened yet. So John's message is a good message, and everything about John's message still applies today, but it's not totally complete because the completion came when the Messiah came. Jesus came, lived his life, and gave his life on the cross. You see, we still need to repent of our sins, but the forgiveness comes because Jesus paid the price for it on the cross. 
That's why Jesus came. That's why it was so important for John to come as God had sent him to point the way to Jesus. You see, all the things that John told the people, they responded positively. They were set and ready to go. And I can't help but believe because we see um, this happening in the story of Scripture. That when Jesus came and he died on the cross and he was buried and he rose again and the, the, the apostles began to preach the gospel, that a lot of people responded and believed. And I believe that for some of them at least, the foundation was laid because they'd heard John the Baptist. And that they had begun to prepare themselves then. We talk about the gospel, which means good news. But the gospel includes good news because there's bad news. The good news is that God brings salvation. And he prayed for it through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. But the bad news is that we need that salvation. Because we are sinners separated from God. Headed to eternal judgment. God doesn't want it that way. So many times people say, well, why, how can a good God send people to hell? And a good God, a loving God, made it possible for people not to have to go to hell because they deserved it, but he made it possible for them not to have to go. The only people that go are those who refuse to take advantage of the way that God provided. So the message is the same today. Jesus is coming. Now, we're talking about a different coming now. Jesus is coming back to establish God's kingdom. In a very real sense, Jesus is coming for each of us at the end of our lives if we live before he comes back physically. But Jesus is coming, and we need to be ready. You need to be ready. How do we need to be ready? We need to repent of our sin. We need to repent of our sin. We need to get right with God. As I said, John didn't have the full message, but we do now. We need to turn to Jesus. We need to come to God and say, God, I am a sinner and I'm separated from you and I ask that you forgive me, not because I deserve it, because I don't, I deserve judgment because of my sin. Not because I can earn it, I'm not going to trust in that, but because your word says that's why Jesus died. The perfect man lived the perfect life that we can't live so that when he died, it paid the price for our sins. So I want to put my trust in him. Forgive me. I repent of my sin. Forgive me. Take control of my life. Help me to live for you. Help me to carry out that second part of the repentance. I'm sorry now. Help me to go the other way. Help me to change. I need your help. I can't do it by myself. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that your spirit comes to dwell within me. That's the the other part of what John said about Jesus. He would baptize in the Holy Spirit, and your spirit's going to give me the power to live that life that I should live now that I'm living for you. But before I go on and pass that repent of your sin, I just want to say this. For those of us that are here today, those of you that are watching online, and if you're sitting there and say, well, you know what? I'm a religious person. I'm a spiritual person, you know? I do good things. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. Remember, it was the religious people that John looked at and said, listen, if it's all external stuff, it's worthless. And they're okay. You think you're good because you're a son of Abraham, a child of it? God can make children of Abraham out of the rocks. We want to update it today. He could say, you know what? God can fill all these chairs with people made out of rocks. God can have all kinds of people reading their Bibles and praying and doing good stuff, and he can create them out of rocks. He wants people whose hearts and lives have changed. And the other thing I just want to mention, because this is so easy to get caught up in, is to think we're okay because our grandma was a good Christian, and she's been praying for me. 
and thank God for praying grandmas. My mom, my dad, was a great Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. My spouse, my husband, my wife, man, he or she really loves Jesus, and we're together on. No, it's a personal thing. You can't get to heaven on somebody else's coattails. It's you and your relationship with God. Repent of your sin. If you repent, you'll receive life. If you do not repent, you will receive judgment. Not because God wants you to have it. We're already under judgment without Christ. God made it possible for us not to experience that judgment if we turn to him. Let's all stand together. I told you earlier that today's been one of those days. So many things have gone wrong with equipment, with other things. As you could tell early in my, earlier in my sermon, for some reason I'm just having a hard time thinking as clearly as usual and even speaking as clearly as I hope to do. And I can't help but think part of that is the enemy is fighting because he wants to make a difference in your life. He wants to make a difference in the lives of those of you that are watching on the live stream or the recording later. And I believe that that would be evidenced by if you're willing to be honest with yourself that God is dealing with your heart. And he's saying there's some changes that need to be made. There's some changes that need to be made. And maybe the most basic change is you need a savior. Maybe you've been going through the motions which are so easy to do. Checking off all the boxes or as many as you can. Going to church, reading your Bible, praying, giving, helping people, being a good person. But God is speaking to you today and say, you know, that's good stuff, but it doesn't save you. You need a Savior. And you have the privilege of meeting Jesus. And by meeting Jesus, I mean coming to know him as your savior as your lord having his presence and power in your life having your sins forgiven and so before we do anything else i just want to ask are any of you that are here or online i can't see your response or any of you here saying you know what i need a savior today i need my life changed and i want to look to jesus to do that i want to surrender my life to him i want to ask him to forgive me of my sins based on what he's done, not what I'm doing. I want to join the rest of you that know him and love him and serve him. This is something to rejoice over. But they ask me today, I need a savior. And today's the day I want to surrender my life to him. Anybody at all? Okay. Maybe there's some of you that online you indicated that. I'm going to say a prayer and... I would invite you, if you need a Savior, those of you that are watching online, to say something like this. To accept Christ into your life. To forgive you of your sins. To make things right with God. Heavenly Father, I come to you today thankful for your word. And I recognize today, and maybe I've already recognized it, but I am a sinner. And not just because your word says so, but I know I am. I, I don't live right. I don't even live up to my own expectations and standards, much less yours. And no matter how hard I try to do what's right, I still can't do it perfectly. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. 
And I thank you that you're willing to do that because Jesus took care of the problem on the cross. I believe that Jesus is God and he came to this earth as man and lived a perfect life and he died on the cross, was buried and rose again. And he did that to pay the price for my sins. And I'm going to put my trust in that. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to live for that. And I ask again that you forgive me and I thank you that Jesus took care of it for me. I surrender my life to you now and I ask that you'd fill me with your spirit and that you'd help me to live a life that is pleasing to you. As as I repent of my sin, help me to leave it behind, Lord God, especially those things that are really tough to leave behind. And God, I thank you that you'll do that because you promised to do that and you keep your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite our elders to come. We're only going to be another couple minutes. Our worship team is going to sing a song. And if you would like prayer for anything, for yourself or for someone else, if God's dealing with your heart about what the message is about, we'll be glad to pray with you about that. You can tell us whatever you want. You don't have to tell us anything in particular. But we're going to sing this one song, make it possible for you to come for prayer, and then I'll come back and close in prayer in just a couple of moments. Father, that song says so much of what is true for all of us. Those of us that have a relationship with you, especially those that do not, we need you, Lord. We need you. I need you. God, we come to you today and we thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus. That the message was proclaimed, that there were those that prepared their hearts. They accepted Jesus and what he did and all through history now that message has gone out the good news that salvation is available through Jesus Christ. We thank you Lord that we've received that message and for those of us that have responded by surrendering our lives we thank you Lord that we can stand here, sit here, be wherever we're at knowing that we're right with you. Not because we're such wonderful people, not because of our spiritual heritage, but because we're trusting in Christ and what he did. Father, I pray you continue to work in our lives. Father, none of us are perfect yet. We make mistakes. We choose wrong things. We give in to the flesh. We give in to temptation. And God, I pray that when we do, that we be very, very quick to repent, Lord God, because even as believers, we need to repent when sin is in our life. And God, I thank you that your word tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But God, help us to live a life pleasing to you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells within us to empower us, to bring us life. God, I pray for those who have not yet chosen to turn to you. Whether they're here in the building or they're watching by video or listening to a recording. God, one more time today, I ask, work in their heart. God, I pray for great conviction, not because I want them to feel guilty or condemned. You don't want them to be condemned either. That's why you convict. But I pray for great conviction that would draw them to you to find release, to provide, to find relief because of forgiveness that comes when they turn to you. Thank you, Lord. I pray as we leave this place today that we would go out into our world to live out a life that is pleasing to you that is not just about ourselves but about other people willing to love others and help others, especially those in need, but also willing to be a messenger like John, 
to share your truth when you open the door so we can point people to Jesus just like John. God, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 